It's March 1935, and a balding 40-something man strides into the Flatiron Building in New York City. He feels a sense of triumph as he heads to the reception desk. Hello, I'm Charles Darrow. I'm here to see Robert Barton, the president of Parker Brothers. Yes, Mr. Barton's expecting you. Head up to the 12th floor. As he rides the elevator to Parker Brothers' offices, Darrow straightens his tie and smooths down his thinning hair. Today is his big moment, the day he strikes it rich by selling Monopoly to Parker Brothers, the nation's leading game maker. The doors open, and he's shown to the corner office of company president Robert Barton. As Darrow enters, Barton rises from his chair to greet him. He's a tall, thin man, a sharp contrast from Darrow's stocky frame. Mr. Darrow, wonderful to finally meet you. Take a seat. I have the contract right here. Darrow sits and admires the magnificent views down Broadway and Fifth Avenue. Barton pushes the contract across his mahogany desk. As we agreed, in return for the rights to Monopoly, you get a $7,000 advance on royalties. Once the game earns that back, you get a percentage on further sales. Now, if you would, please just sign right there. Darrow's eyes widen. That advance is worth $130,000 in today's dollars. But just as Darrow picks up the pen, Barton remembers something. Oh, uh, before you sign, I should ask, are you the sole creator of Monopoly? Darrow pauses, pen hovering over the contract. He is one signature away from the biggest payday of his life. He looks at Barton and smiles. (laughs) Why, yes. Yes, I am. And then he signs. As Barton pops the champagne cork to celebrate... Darrow grins, but inside, he's praying Barton never learns the truth. And that's because Darrow did not invent Monopoly. Not even close. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know business. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downey. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now free for 30 days. Head on over to audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500. That's audible.com slash BW or text BW to 500-500 and try out Audible free for 30 days. From Wondery, I'm David Brown and this is Business Wars.
When it comes to board games, one brand towers over the competition. That's right, Monopoly. Since it burst into stores in the 1930s, this game, famous for its cutthroat fun, has sold more than 250 million copies. Maybe that's because it taps into the belief that if we could just get into real estate, we could make a killing too, even if it is at the expense of renters. We're covering the vicious tale of backstabbing, shattered dreams, and big bucks that led to the rise of Monopoly in a one-episode business battle, Winner Takes All. It's 1902, and in a meeting hall in Washington, D.C., a pale 30-something woman with short, dark, curly hair looks out at her audience. The turnout isn't great, mostly empty chairs peppered with familiar faces. Once more, Lizzie McGee is preaching to the converted. She ignores her disappointment and refocuses on her speech. Ladies, it's a moral imperative that we spread the word. We can only create a just and equal society with Henry George's progressive tax reforms. Henry George is McGee's idol. She fell for his ideas after reading his book, Progress in Poverty. In that book, George offered a novel solution to lift up the nation's poor. Tax land at 100% and abolish all other taxes. See, George argued it's wrong for people to profit just from owning land. Take New York's Chrysler Building. The owners of that iconic Art Deco skyscraper don't own the land it's built on. Every year, they pay millions of dollars in ground rent to the owner of the land. So in George's utopia, every cent a landowner makes from ground rent will go to the government instead to fund public services or to give every citizen a basic income. George's vision spawned a movement with tens of thousands of followers. They called themselves the Single Taxers, and McGee was an early convert. But since George died five years ago, the movement's lost momentum. Now it's up to die-hard single taxers like McGee to keep the flame alive. And she's determined to fire up her small audience. Landowners don't work the land or develop it. They profit simply by owning the land. The land God gave us all. To end poverty, we must tax the landowners and let people Keep what they earn. Thank you. Thank you. As McGee exits the stage, she feels there must be a better way to spread the single tax message than these badly attended lectures. But how? Most people's eyes glaze over when she mentions tax reform. What the movement needs is an entertaining way to educate the public. Slowly, an idea takes shape. An idea for a board game. A board game that makes learning George's message fun. It's summer, 1902, and in her home in Brentwood, Maryland, Lizzie McGee lays a game board on the dining room table. The two friends she's invited over lean in for a closer look. The board is square and handmade. A track of squares drawn in black ink runs around its edges. Each square has a rental and purchase price. 
In the corners of the board are four larger spaces. McGee's friend Marie peers at the nearest corner. No trespassing. Go to jail. Lizzie, do we get jailed in this game? Yes, if you land there. That space is owned by Lord Blueblood of England. It represents foreign ownership of American soil. Land there and you go to jail. McGee doles out paper money as she explains her game. I call it the landlord's game. Now the goal is to become the wealthiest player. You buy lots and build houses on them. When someone lands on your property, you charge them rent. The more houses you build, the higher the rent. McGee's pal Lawrence interrupts. What if we can't afford the rent? Then you must sell your property or borrow from others. If you still can't pay, you're sent to the poorhouse. McGee taps the corner space containing both the poorhouse and a public park. You can only escape the poorhouse if you can afford your next move. McGee points to the final corner space. On it are the words, Labor upon Mother Earth produces wages. Now this is the start. Every time you pass it, you get $100. Uh, When does the game end? We go round five times, then see who's won. Now Marie, you go first. Eleven. One, two, three, four. Thirty minutes later, the competition's getting fierce. Lawrence jiggles in his seat as Lizzie lands on one of his properties. Ah, that's my land, Lizzie. You owe me twenty dollars. McGee grimaces. I'm broke. Marie, please lend me twenty dollars, would you? I'm almost at Mother Earth. I can repay you next turn. I'm not helping you. Where were you when I needed bail? Up to the poorhouse you go. Ten minutes later, Marie's celebrating. <laughs> I won. Lizzie, what a fun game you've made. Lawrence crosses his arms. Fun? You left me in the poorhouse. What's fun about that? Well, it's shameful, but it was quite fun ruining everyone else. Lawrence looks at McGee concerned. Lizzie, how does this spread the single tax message? Come on. Aren't you just showing people that land ownership is the path to riches? Look at how it transformed dear sweet Marie into a ruthless money grubber. But McGee isn't deterred. I'm writing an alternative set of rules where all land rent goes to the public treasury for equal distribution. When children play my game, they'll see the injustice of our land system. It'll make them single taxers before they even leave school. McGee patents the landlord's game and shares handmade copies with her single-taxer friends. Then, determined to spread her message more widely, she self-publishes the game. But it bombs. So she mails a copy to Parker Brothers, the nation's leading game maker. Parker Brothers rejects it as too slow, too complicated, and too political. McGee's plan to promote politics through play seems to have come to nothing. Or so she thinks. It's 1910, and at the Wharton School of Finance in Philadelphia, economics professor Scott Nearing's class is about to start. On the tables, his students find handmade game boards. One student looks at the rail-thin socialist professor. Sir, what is this? That's the game we're playing today. Really? Is there a prize? Your prize is a better understanding of the wickedness that is land monopoly. Now sit so I can explain the rules. 
Nearing doesn't know it, but this game is the landlord's game. He discovered it after moving to Arden, Delaware, a progressive community built around the idea of a land value tax. Years earlier, one of McGee's handmade copies of the landlord's game wound up there. But no one in Arden remembers where it came from or what it's called. Veneering doesn't care about its origins. All he knows is it's ideal for teaching the students about the evils of monopolies. After class, a couple of students approach him. That game's really good, Professor. Can I make a copy? Sure, go ahead. As the student sketches a replica of the board, his buddy turns to Nearing. Hey, what's, what's the game called? I don't know. My friends call it the anti-landlord game. Hmm. Business would be a better name, actually. The other student looks up. No, no, it should be called Monopoly. Nearing students might be the first to copy the game, but they're not the last. Over the next 20 years, handmade replicas of the game now known as Monopoly spread around university campuses. People paint boards on oilcloth, tap out chance cards on typewriters, turn earrings into playing pieces, and make miniature wooden houses. But they don't just duplicate the game, they change it too. They turn the park in the poorhouse into free parking, add community chest cards, and rename the Mother Earth Square Go. McGee's alternative rules promoting a single-tax society are soon forgotten, and properties get grouped into sets. In 1930, Monopoly washes up in Atlantic City, where some teachers refashion the game to mirror their surroundings. They rename the spaces on the board after local streets and select Boardwalk as the most expensive. They turn the railroads into the ones that serve their city and make the fifth house built on a property a hotel. Their version soon travels beyond Atlantic City. It's 1932, and in Philadelphia, real estate manager Charles Todd is running late. As he moves down the sidewalk, a tired-looking beggar sticks out his hand. Can you help, mister? Todd shakes his head and hurries on. The Great Depression's hit Philly hard. The public parks are now cardboard cities filled with victims of the downturn. Just then, a woman steps out of her grocery store. Todd almost walks right into her. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. The two look at each other and Todd's jaw drops. Esther? Charles Todd? I haven't seen you in so long. We must have still been at school. How are you? I'm well. Married and, thank God, still working. What about you? Also married. My husband's also a Charles. Charles Darrow. He repairs radiators, but he's struggling for work now. Hmm. Sorry to hear that. Listen, I've got an appointment, but I'd love to catch up. Why don't you and Charles come to our apartment for dinner, hmm? We can play this new game we have. It's called Monopoly, and it's really something. It's a few days later, and the Todds are hosting the Darrows for dinner. After catching up about old times with Esther, Charles Todd turns to her brawny husband. Esther said you repair radiators. Darrow stares back through round, wire-framed spectacles. Did. No demand for that now, so I do whatever I can. Odd jobs, repairing electrics, walking dogs. Even started making and selling jigsaw puzzles. 
Yes, tough times. I pray for improvement. Your boys help at all? The Darrows glance at each other. Suddenly, Esther rises from her seat, tears welling in her eyes. Excuse me, I need the restroom. After Esther leaves, Darrow fills Todd in. Not your fault. It's our youngest, Dickie. He had scarlet fever. It left him brain damaged. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Is he in an institution now? No, have you seen those places? They're horrific. We couldn't live with ourselves if we put Dickie in a place like that. So, uh, well, we do the best we can with what little we have. When Esther returns, Todd changes the subject. Why don't we play a game? A friend gave us this handmade game called Monopoly. I reckon you'll like it. Soon, the moods changed. The Todds and Darrows alike get absorbed in moving their tokens around the plain oilcloth board, bidding for properties and demanding rent. And Charles Darrow is especially smitten with the game. A few days later, he asks Todd to make him a copy of the board. A week later, he asks Todd to write out the rules. Todd thinks nothing of it. But then the Darrows cut off contact. Whenever Todd sees them, they cross the street or duck into side streets. He can't understand it. He worries his inquiries about their son offended the Darrows. Then one morning, he passes his local bank and discovers why. In the bank's window is a poster advertising a forthcoming event, a demonstration by Charles Darrow of his new game, Monopoly. Todd stares at the poster, rage surging through him. Darrow's taken the game and is now selling it as his own. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business. It's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. See, State Farm agents are small business owners, too. They know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor... State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It's 1934, and in the Flatiron Building in New York, Charles Darrow is playing Monopoly with a group of Parker Brothers executives. Darrow sends the dice clattering across the table. Four, damn it. Darrow reluctantly pushes his coin towards Marvin Gardens. Since getting his hands on Monopoly, he's given the game a makeover. The plain hand-drawn board now pops with color and character. Beyond that, nothing's changed. As Darrow reaches Marvin Gardens, Edward Parker grins. Welcome to my hotel, Mr. Darrow. Your stay will be $1,200. 
Darrow holds up his hands. You got me. You got me. I can't even remortgage my way out of that. Well played, sir. Thanks. So, Charles, what gave you the idea for Monopoly? Darrow knew he'd have to field this question eventually, so he's got his story ready. I made it to amuse myself. I think The Seed was a book I read as a child. In it, some boys at a school made imaginary investments for class. That idea stuck with me. And now you're selling the game in Philadelphia? Yes. I've sold nearly a hundred copies, but I still can't afford playing pieces. I tell people to use trinkets from charm bracelets. Hmm, interesting. Well, thanks for coming. We'll be in touch. After Darrow leaves, the team debates Monopoly's merits. That's fine, but, but not great. It violates some basics, I think. Such as? Well, it drags. No game should last more than 45 minutes. Yeah, and all that stuff about mortgages. Kids won't get that. Not sure most adults will, really. Parker nods. I agree. Okay, it's a no. Darrow ignores the rejection. Monopoly's the closest to a regular wage he's had in years, and he's got a wife and a disabled son to support. So after selling his hundredth handmade copy, he ups his ambition. He pays for 500 professionally made sets and persuades the Wanamaker's department store in downtown Philadelphia to stock the game. Then he goes to every toy store he can and tells them Wanamaker's stocks his game. Soon, they're all stocking Monopoly, too. By October 1934, the buzz is growing. Wanamaker's orders more copies. Then, New York's famous toy store FAO Schwartz puts Monopoly on its shelves. Soon, Parker Brothers invites Darrow back to the Flatiron Building. Darrow reassures Parker Brothers president Robert Barton that he created Monopoly, and the company pays top dollar for the rights. Deal done. Parker Brothers gives the game some more polish. It adds die-cast playing pieces inspired by charm bracelet trinkets. It also creates a mascot, a cuddly banker in top hat and tails. By the summer of 1935, sales are soaring. No one's sure why. Maybe it's the joy of holding fistfuls of paper money in a depression. Maybe it's the appeal of striking it rich. Or maybe it's just the chance to hustle friends and family. Whatever the reason, Monopoly's hot property. And the publicity campaign pushing Darrow's own rags-to-riches story spurs sales even more. But then, trouble strikes. It's fall 1935, and Parker Brothers' chief attorney is in a panic. He bursts into Barton's office. Boss! Boss, I found something while preparing the Monopoly patent. Monopoly isn't Darrow's. Barton leaps up from his chair. What? There are earlier games just like it. One in Texas called Inflation. There's another in Indianapolis called Finance. The original seems to be the Landlord's Game, which was patented in 1904 by a woman called Lizzie McGee. Barton steadies himself on his desk. Monopoly is the fastest-selling board game of all time. Sales will top a quarter of a million copies this year. Now... It could all come crashing down like a, like a house of cards. 
Okay, okay. Here's what we do. We buy those rights, okay? We need those patents. And now let's also renegotiate Darrow's deal. Parker Brothers leaps into action. It buys the rights to finance an inflation. It forces Darrow to accept a lower royalty. Then it sends company founder George Parker to Virginia to secure the all-important rights to the landlord's game. It's late 1935, and in Lizzie McGee's home in Arlington, Virginia, George Parker sips his ice water. The 69-year-old goatee gaming tycoon smiles at the white-haired McGee. Mrs. McGee, we're interested in acquiring the patent for the landlord's game, and we'll pay $500. McGee's eyes light up. For two decades, she's watched the single tax movement fizzle. She'd consoled herself with a hope that Monopoly might educate the public about the need for a single tax, even if she didn't get the credit. But now, Barton's here offering her a chance to fan the dying embers of the movement she loves. That's wonderful, but you must also agree to publish the landlord's game, complete with the alternative rules. Parker knows it's a small price to pay for a monopoly on Monopoly. But what the deal doesn't do is give McGee credit for Monopoly. After sealing the deal, Parker Brothers keeps quiet about her role. Instead, it maintains the lie that Darrow invented Monopoly. After all, his rags-to-riches story is way more relatable than the tale of a radical feminist championing a dead economist. And even with his reduced royalties, Darrow becomes a millionaire. Within a year, he's sailing the world, living on a large farm, and giving his son Dickie the best care money can buy. But the real winner is Parker Brothers. In 1936, demand for Monopoly overwhelms the company. It runs its factory round the clock, it stops making other games, and it still can't keep up. That year, Monopoly sells one and three-quarter million copies in the U.S. alone. It hasn't stopped selling since. It's 1939, and in Arlington, Virginia, McGee's just taken delivery of a parcel wrapped in brown paper. She tears it open. Inside is Parker Brothers' version of The Landlord's Game. She unfolds the board and smiles. It's beautiful. A bright blue lake in the center, surrounded by higgledy-piggledy property spaces. Thrilled, she heads to her typewriter to write a letter to Parker Brothers. There has been a song in my heart since the game arrived. Someday, I hope, you will publish other games of mine. Her elation is short-lived. The landlord's game languishes on store shelves. Eventually, Parker Brothers sends most of the 10,000 copies it made to the dump. The landlord's game is dead and buried. All that's left is Monopoly. Today, that game is regarded by millions as the ultimate love letter to unrestrained capitalism. But McGee's message is still there, hiding in plain sight. 
from Wondery. This is Business Wars, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. We invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. There's a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also find some offers from our sponsors, and you can support our show by supporting them. Hey, if you like what you've heard, you can support the show another way, too. Give us a five-star rating, would you? And tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. And while you're there, don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear next. Quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondery. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels. A symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.